0: Good day, everyone. Thank you for joining us, and welcome to the second part of our interview with Alex Menes and Eileen Sherpati. In today's interview, we're going to be talking about things like navigating the regulatory environment, keys to success in the mid-tech industry, and logistics of mid-tech delivery. It's going to be a really fun interview. I hope you enjoy it. Um, All right, let's talk a little bit about navigating the regulatory environment. You guys started in the UK, and you expanded to the US and globally. So you've dealt with a lot of regulatory needs, let's call it. Um, How did that go? And then did you guys hire regulatory consultants or did you go through the process on your own?
1: No, so I'm going to be a bit glib here. We we read the guidance, did what they asked us to do, and then we got the regulatory clearance we asked for. And that was that really. It wasn't, you know, obviously got a team of fantastic people that know what they're doing. And we had a little bit of regulatory assistance. Um, like some consultants kind of gave us some some bits. But the FDA in particular, very transparent, you know, they told us what we need to do to make a high quality tool. And we just did it. And I don't know what the fuss is about. And I think, you know, it's harder if you're making a heart valve connected to a phone, you know, <laughs> and it's, it's going to kill someone if it goes wrong. I think that's that, that needs a different level of evidence, should we say. And if you're making a drug, You know, you're going to do a new fancy biologic that tackles some aspect of some disease. You need to run a trial to prove that it can do that. But with a lot of the diagnostic med tech developments, you're just not doing anything dangerous enough most of the time to require ridiculously high levels of strain on the regulatory side of things. So we just made a really high quality tool. We validated within each of its life. So, for example, the tool can automatically detect and correct respiratory motion. So, a child in the MRI scanner can keep breathing, and it doesn't ruin their, their studies. And we we can very much like captured where it's good and where it isn't in certain situations, and communicate that clearly to the to the user. But the, the the regulators are not the problem in this industry at all. And I'd say they're well down the list, not even the top five of like challenges that we've like had to kind of work around. So I think that's all I'll say on that matter. But you, uh, you can probably suspect that I've got some <laughs> other points on this to make. So one of the key things that, you know, a better lean does not worry about is what happened in the lab when someone was calculating the fecal cal score. You know, there's a whole world of like lab, you know, procedures out there that involve how you actually kind of generate the fecal cal score, which is used to drive a lot of treatment. And people don't worry about how that score is generated because there's because of that regulation. The same regulation also exists for AIs and all these other tools that produce a numerical score. For example, GeoQuant, there's a lot of kind of standard practice. I think the question is like, do you trust the number that comes out of that lab? And do you know how to interpret it? And has it have enough patients pass through your clinic for you to actually get a feel for what this means to you? And when you go to a conference and you speak to your colleagues, and you say, oh, the GeoQuant score looks like it's working quite well. Do they know what you're on about and do they agree or are they like, what on earth is the GeoQuant score? I've never heard of it before. And I think there's a big difference between the regulators saying your test does what it says on the tin and the guidelines saying this has got a meaningful role in clinical practice. And the big challenge that we have, especially in the medtech side of things, is there is no confidence in what the FDA say around that device in terms of what it means to you and your patients when practicing medicine. And I think this is, this is the issue. And this is why having regulatory clearance is kind of like having a hunting pass. It means you can go into the woods and try and, like, hunt for something. It doesn't mean it actually works. And <laughs> I've never gone hunting, but I'm led to believe it's not as easy as it looks. Um, and that's the, that's where you end up in, like, a quite a big gulf and where we are stuck very much at the moment. We have our clearance, so we can run around out there and try and sell stuff. But until there is a real tangible feel and pull from this is how we want to manage Crohn's, it, you know... You're, you're in the hinterland, really, and you're waiting and you're supporting and you're building evidence, but it's a terrifying gap that you've got to kind of exist in for any kind of, anyone that makes a number for clinicians to kind of manage patients, you've got probably a five to 10 year gap where you sit there. Now we're 10 years into it already. So, you know, the grand scheme of things are kind of get in there. But um, it's, that's the real problem, not the regulatory one. I think the regulatory barrier is a bit of a red herring when it comes to people raising
0: money and worrying about all this kind of stuff. So I love that that you mentioned that because I do believe there are two categories of regulation. Um, yeah. There is, you know, the regulatory bodies like the FDA, but then there is the clinician regulatory body, right? This is it, it, clinicians, like you described, trusting your score or, you know, knowing what to do with your score. That's an additional layer of regulation that, Uh, we usually don't think about and it's great that you're bringing them this forth um, because a lot of health tech entrepreneurs should be thinking about this earlier on and they should be in touch with physicians really early on to see what physicians need um, in order to understand the technology as well as make use of it.
1: But do you not feel, and this is a bit of a question back to you guys, if entrepreneurs knew what were to ask that question and would say, okay, so what would you need to see if, so that you just bought what I'm doing? It would fill them with existential dread and they just give up before they began. Honestly, the only reason I'm here is because I didn't know it was going to be such a nightmare, I think, post-regulatory. I mean, you know, it's it's no joke getting that trust. And th- th- there's a very good reason like these, these companies raise a fortune, not to get it to market, but when it's at market, to kind of really just lay siege to clinics everywhere and try and build it up. But it takes... Takes so much longer, I think, um, than anyone ever kind of gives it credit for. And I guess my question to you both is: How would you adopt a new tech when someone comes up with a new number? Even if you kind of get it, I guess, Aline, we've we've started today a bit from scratch, and you're you know you're quite the name in this area. You can take what I say on on face value, and I don't think I give you any overwhelming reason to disregard it, but what's the journey for you now if you were going to adopt a piece of technology like this like how many months or years or like what would you need to see in that evidence plan to kind of move forward and what would you what would you say to other companies that for example are approaching you with like a number
2: i mean i think it's a great question and i think first you know as as scientists, as physician, we're looking at the data first, right? So you look at the data and you say, "Well, this is good data. This is the the, the studies have, do, have been done in a rigorous manner. The methods are, are are robust. The results are robust. I'm going to apply it to my patient." And I think the 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 in real life, the positive feedback that you get is, um, you know, using a specific technology, using a specific test, etc., actually effectively. Um, change my management for the patient and I can see results. So there's, there's a the data that is more like numbers, you know, it's, it's, it's kind of the concept, okay, this, this looks good, but then you want to try it in real life. Right. And I think uh, this is really like the key test. If, if uh, for a physician, for a gastroenterologist, for a patient, if they recognize that this test was easy to take, easy to interpret and affected management and I could see, you know, on follow-up how this management was, was affected, that, that is very powerful, right? And, and that actually, you, you pick up more, you, you'll, you'll do, you'll, you'll use that test more, um, after you've had that, that experience. Um, you know, I think because as, as, as physician, we are scientists, but we're also a human being, right? It's like this positive experience, feedback versus negative experience. If it's a hard test to order, if, I get the result and I'm not sure what to do with the results. There's no, you know, guidance. What am I going to do with this number or with this result? Or if repeatedly I feel, you know, I, it, it didn't change my management or when I tried to uh, change management based on this test result, I didn't get the, the results that I expected. That's that negative feedback. And I think, again, as human being, you can really get hung up on these few negative experiences. Um, so I think, you know, like with, with any test, it's something that you should be able to, Apply to your patient population, the type of patient you're treating. It should be easy. It should be interpretable. There should be some degree of confidence that with this number, with this result, I could do this. With this result, I could do something different. And and really seeing in real life how 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 things are happening, right? How things are rolling. And and, and I think that the real life experience it gets very powerful as a positive or sometimes a negative feedback on how we're going to do uh, things moving forward.
1: Yeah, right. And I think the the goal for people in my position is to get it in your hands as quickly and as cheaply as possible. So you can kind of build up that, that time. And the other big issue, I kind of, I love the Ford quote about, you know, ask people what they want when they say a fast horse. You know, there's there's a bit of a joke in it. in that you know, Imagine beaming a Tesla back 200 years ago where there isn't a road to drive it on. I mean, there's already, especially here in the UK, not enough charging stations around. But if you haven't got the infrastructure to go around it, it really becomes absurd. You might marvel at the beauty of the thing, the clean lines and the cool touch play. But when it powered down for the final time, you'd just be left with an expensive piece of junk that you can't do anything with. And I feel like so many of the modern you know technology that's coming through hits this barrier of, even if the tech is there, if you don't trust it, and if you not and when I say trust, I mean you've not used it enough. If your care pathway doesn't allow you to actually make decisions around it, so let's just take take me at my word here. And I can give you a, a numerical score at three months that that drug is not working. That you've just stuck that that person on. Can you actually get the scan at three months? And will radiology take it? Do you know what combination of drugs to give them to kind of get them out of that hole? Are the insurers going to pay for it? You know, and there's a you, there's like a Russian doll of problems that can unfurl because the world just isn't ready for it at the moment. So I think one of the big issues is, and it'll fall flat as well, like if you can't do what you want to do with that test, it's going to look bad and you're going to get frustrated and that's going kind to of be the end of it. So I think there's, there's really two big problems here. There's the actual, what could it do in a perfect world, which is, you know, I'm actually less worried about that because that's kind of demonstrable. But I think the other part is, can we actually set up an environment that enables the success and the proof of this technology rather than trying to lever it into the janky system we might have today, which just makes everyone look badly, like most of all the tech. And I think this is another thing that I'm quite excited to try and tackle, especially working with like a few good centers is can we actually set up a Crohn's Pathway 2.0 for small bowel Crohn's, just build the process up from the ground. And I think this is really what you need to do to kind of prove things, and especially in chronic diseases where people don't die. You know, some of the big successful companies I've placed, like Rapid and Viz.ai, these work on stroke and it's like seconds and living and dying and really kind of clear pathways where you, you get very short term follow up on what was good and what was bad and where the money was spent. One of the biggest issues in gastroenterology just in general is the, the lack of massive urgency. I'm um, not saying bleeds aren't important. I'm saying an inflammatory bowel disease. You can get it wrong and it could kind of be ignored for longer than I think we'd like to admit just because oh, I was just the way the disease is. And I think exceptional people like you both don't play like that. But I think it's, it's true that a lot of errors can be kind of concealed in the general confusion around how this disease works and everything else. So it makes proving the real value of what you're doing very difficult. And Geoffrey short, for Colin Bell that Matt demonstrated with the calm study that if you really manage treatment, especially you know distal Crohn's disease, if you call cow, Cal, you can get better results. But how many people have started doing that? Like, not that many because it's just not practical or easy or they don't truly really understand it. So I guess going back again, it's like how how do you foster an environment of success for the new technology? And I don't necessarily need an answer for either you on that, but I think that's that's the way that the clinicians have to look at it as scientists as well. But it's difficult, I know. Uh,
2: th- th- this is fascinating because this is like a conversation beyond technology and beyond what technology can bring. This is like at the heart of, how we approach chronic illness, how we manage our patient, uh, how do we translate high quality data into real life? How much is it is it translated? How much our patients are benefiting from all the research and uh, and innovation happening, or only, or is it only a fraction of our patient uh, benefiting from uh, from you know um, more um, you know better approach if you want or, or like more holistic comprehensive and state-of-the-art approach to uh taking care of IBD patients so that, that is a fantastic conversation from uh innovation and technology to really
1: um you know the
2: heart of how we approach patient care
1: right i mean i'm so over the ai discussion like who cares like <laughs> it's about what is it doing for the patient and how are we adopting it using it and evolving the care algorithm. Like well, that's the interesting part. Not what's the bit of tech down the end somewhere. Like that's that's just a means to an end. And I, you know, I was hit I was fiddling around this space before AI came up. And before then there was like you know loads of different schema that have been used to kind of produce cool statistical results. But at the end of the day, is it meaningfully impacting the patient care pathway? Is the only thing that matters and I think is actually the more interesting area. And I think tech distracts us from what's really actually important, I think, in these debates and I'm glad we so about for an, Yeah,
2: I agree. For any technology, it's important to keep the patient at the center of what we're doing, what we're doing, right? So, Barry, I think you have material for right. three or four podcasts here. <laughs>
0: <laughs> I, think, I think that, yeah, as, as I was listening, I was thinking that um, this conversation should be should be recorded probably over like five or six episodes. <laughs> it's There's too so much to unpack. It's just so incredible. I mean, you guys are amazing. Um, but I, I wanted to touch upon something because Alex, what you brought up is an amazing point. Um, and it's that at this day and age, technology has made it easier to do unexpected things or things that we would have thought were completely impossible in the past. Um, like looking for example, at the motility of the small bowel in patients with Crohn's disease, but at the t- same time, this brings up more questions and it brings up more challenges and one of those challenges is what you described, which is how, how can we ensure that this piece of information actually gets used in an appropriate way to help the patient? And I think that technology also offers the answer to that question because now with digital health, um, we can actually integrate m- many of the physicians as well as the supporting staff that can actually help the patient in, um, the patient care in general. So if you look at um, companies like Oshi Health, for example, um, they have a really great approach to uh, GI patients where a patient will get assigned a physician and nutritionist, a nurse practitioner, and uh, basically to try and get a holistic approach to this patient. And I think here, um, this really applies very well is, is you guys should probably think about getting a, a strategic partnership with a um, digital health company that can actually connect the radiologist to the IBDologist to the patient's um, general GI, uh, as well as their primary care doctor in order to ensure that the patient, for example, gets their scan at the right time, like you, like you said, um, and they have somebody who can help them get the medication um, and, and get it approved through the insurance. Um, and and get all these things done i think technology brings the question but also brings the answer
1: yeah um i mean again this this is not a podcast that's kind of for the for the every person i feel like we're swinging between incredibly big deep dives on various topic areas i think again though the people are at the center of it, and i think you guys have got a big role to play in it as healthcare professionals that really kind of own that patient's care pathway and where there's willing people problems disappear very quickly like i think where there's a really integrated gastric department with surgeons radiologists nurse practitioners all the all the people stuff can happen rapidly and bizarrely tech is actually making is going backwards in a lot of hospitals like it departments are now slower than ever to open up the doors to kind of move data around. We've got all the regulatory standards in place. So you know how to look after patient data, you know what to leave behind so that you don't cause any risks. The patients are saying, get on with it already. The amount of patients that just said, here, take my data damn it, and give me the numbers. <laughs> you know, st- Stop telling me about it and get on with it kind of thing. But the, the hospitals are obviously very kind of terrified of like messing this up, especially in the UK with GDPR where there's just ridiculous fines that can be applied to kind of breaches. While the tech has enabled rapid progress we do not have the mindset yet and the ability to actually act on that so we're not feeling the progress in 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 the way that i think resonates with us and makes us feel happy about ourselves Uh, i'm ashamed to say that i ground some clinicians into the dust by heaping pressure on them to kind of lobby their their departments on, on the it front on the contracting front and all the rest of it and they're your champion on the inside but it can really take its toll if you're working in a healthcare system that is really not set up to adopt new technology. Um, All you do is fatigue them. And, you know, at the end of the day, they're busy people. They've got families they want to be with. They want to be disencumbered with a lot of problems, not have more stuff heaped on top of them. And I found that the the technology, despite the ability and the options it has, it often does the opposite and I think puts up more barriers to actually moving these things forward. Um, If it's on the care algorithm, if it's reimbursed and paid for, and if you're not doing harm... It's very easy to kind of like sit back and just basically do what you're told to do because it, it, it can make your life a lot easier and you know, better. And I think my, my concern is that even with you know companies that are quite digital and like native, and there's a lot of clinicians out there that do this, and I, I think I just really profoundly respect them for it, but there is a, not a lot for them to be gained sometimes from going through the hell that is all the kind of the, the permissions and regulatory side of stuff internally at their institution. And I think that is the biggest risk that we're facing innovating in this space is that um the payoff isn't there for a lot of people that get involved um that's a bit of a sloppy point i'm not sure if either of you have got experience of this but adopting this stuff is blooming hard and crushes your morale if you're not set up with some kind of ungodly gift for administration i think
0: yeah i can imagine that and i think you know there's something special about what you're doing that Will make it a lot more difficult. Um, you know, just going through your publications, uh, I could see that there is uh, a lot of radiology stuff, um, a lot of radiology jargon that, as a as a gastroenterologist, I didn't really understand very well. Um, and you're really kind of on on the verge between, like, you're right in the middle in that no man's land between GI and and radiology. Um, And I I guess that that can make it really difficult because I can see the biggest people who feel the frustration and who feel the need uh, for this technology are going to be the gastroenterologists because at the end of the day, we see how the patients suffer. We treat those patients every day. We get their phone calls um, and we see them in the hospital when they get admitted. And then on the other hand, you have the radiologist who understands the technical problem but does not have the same kind of frustration because they don't really see the patient. Mm. They don't really interact with them. Um, and therefore you have to convince both, but at the same time, you don't have the language maybe to convince both and maybe the communications between them are not great. So what has your experience been uh, with kind of walking the line between radiology and gastroenterology?
1: Oh yeah, um, it's, it's a really good question. and. Um... The short answer is I've just made a horrible business that I wouldn't wish on my worst enemy, to be honest, because as you rightly say, gastros has got different problems to radiologists uh, in terms of their kind of the, the job. So I've got to try and do a dual sale, as it were. I've got to say, here's the benefits for you as a gastro, like a number for the disease activity and complex mobile disease. We can tighten this up for you. And you're like, cool, cool. Um, and then the radiologist is a bit like, well, if it ain't broke, don't fix it necessarily. Like the MR, we're confident of doing what we're doing. It works for us. We're doing one yearly follow-up. That cadence is fine for us. And I'm also drowning doing prostate MRs, which is now the whole thing at the moment. So they don't really want changes to their work that brings uncertainty to them. So you're fighting a double mountain. And I think the, the other key thing is, you know, who pays for this? Is it the radiology department? So they're offering you a better service? So they attract more business? If so, doing MREs? it's not only a small part of their job, it's probably one of the more difficult parts of their job as well, because they're not that easy to to read. So I think that that's a bit of a question. And if Gastro are paying for this, for example, they're paying for a toy they don't get to play with. They're almost gifting radiology something cool. And you're like, well, if I'm going to buy something, I'm going to buy it for myself. I'm going to buy that sweet new ultrasound system so I can start having a little look around and doing all this kind of thing. And in, in cardiology, the cardiologists just bought their own MRI scanners and set them up for just doing one job and they took that business over we could see that happening in gastro one day especially when you all get to play around with the more GI physiology stuff like constipation and complex GI workup I think you're going to enjoy that when that comes out in the future I think but it's it's a bit too soon to have that conversation but for the time being we've just got to really make a strong compelling case to gastro to demand this thing and then price it in a way that doesn't throw up massive blocks to radiology using it. And then I think we need to really get behind our radiologists that are like leading the way in this. And if, you know, we don't need thousands of radiologists, for example, to be trained on this. We probably need a, a relatively speaking a handful of really skilled ones that know what they're doing in luminal GI. And you're going to get to then lean on those guys with this kind of this technology and be like, that's that's what I want for my radiology service. And I think a smaller number of highly skilled radiologists will take up quite a lot of this market space, facilitated by what we're doing. We still need that brain power and i think when you we start kind of getting that information from the pulled down you're going to really kind of get to feel it but creating and architecting that 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 change in how we do ibd at the moment this is our major battleground and i think that it only comes about through relentless focus and building of trust and you know, through publications and collaborative work and consortias and all that kind of stuff it's going to start off in a small space and then kind of hopefully expand out a bit but it's um it's a very, very difficult sell, to put it that way. And it's something that, you know, I've, I've really created a company that's built to kind of endure and kind of go the distance, I think, with this thing. Because it will work, and I think it does work, and it looks great, I think, when you see it working. But it's not something that we can just instantly transpose into any department
0: uh, today. Wonderful. That's that's great insight. Um, Aline, do you have um, expertise or... Uh, experience in in kind of bringing radiologists and gastroenterologists together. I know that IBD is is a big place where they meet. What what has your experience been in, in dealing with this particular issue?
2: Yeah I mean um, you know both of you bring great points and I think in you know in any IBD center where there's an IBD focus uh we all recognize the importance of um communication and learning from each other so I think if you're looking at IBD centers you'll you know you'll see you know Everywhere we, there will be these multidisciplinary conference where once a week we meet with the radiologists, the surgeons, the pathologists, and 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 discuss uh, complex uh, cases and uh, complex situation. And what I, my experience is that is that you you when when this is happening, it, several things happen. One is we really learn from each other. Uh, so this on endoscopy, how they look on our MRI, and the radiologists might change their reading right based on what they see on endoscopy. What end up happening on surgery? So we like learning. To better interpret what we're seeing as endoscopists, as radiologists, as pathologists, so we definitely there's a uh, um, you know learning. The other thing that happened and it creates interest, you know you you, you know suddenly that that radiologist that is reading imaging anywhere from. You know, uh, CT for diverticulitis to MRI for the small bowel crowns. Now they're interested in Crohn's disease. Now they're interested in IBD. Now they want to be reading most of the images that come across, right? And uh, so it really creates interest and it creates, so it increases expertise. It increases expertise, but it also increases excitement. And honestly, you know, one of the things in medicine, you know, we, we, all of us went into science or medicine or, you know, any of those fields because we wanted to make a difference and we were excited by the science and we were, you know, we had a joy in it. And um, sometimes when we get stuck by, you know, the day-to-day, you know, Paperwork and, and and worries. We forget why we went into this. So I think that these kind of communication recreate that excitement, the excitement of you know uh, innovating within our within our practice, understanding things better, knowing that we're making a better a difference, knowing that um, today when I'm going to read this MRI or do the scope, I'm going to be better than I was a few months ago when I didn't have this interaction. So I think bringing people together is absolutely key to get people on board with it you know, whether it's a technology or learning or, 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 or really kind of, uh, uh, improving, uh, patient care. So, um, you know, going back to what Alex was saying, yes, who's, who's going to be the person adopting this technology. And I think the only way this can happen is really by bringing people together, get everybody excited by the same thing. And, um, I might be naive. Uh, there's a lot of financial things that goes on, and all these things. But I think when people are excited by uh, like a common goal, it it does make a difference. Now, we, I, I I'm I'm. I realize that I'm talking about a small group of people here, right? Academic centers, people focused on IBD, and then when you want to bring um, a technology that's more generalizable to uh, make a community hospitals, small practice, private practice, etc., that 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 it creates a different set of challenge. Uh, this is when cost effectiveness, ease of, um, you know, implementing something, reimbursement, all these things become really important and crucial. And it really depends on what you're trying to do, right? So maybe what you're trying to do is have this technology available to specialty center, because it's, you know, this is where you can get the best result. We've all seen when, um, you know, uh, for example, virtual colonoscopy for colon cancer screening, you look at the data done in specialty center was great when, we translate it to community practice that have not had, you know, the training, the practice, the focus of this, we don't have as good of a data, right? It takes time. So it really, I think, you know, if you want to really optimize your technology and make it always relevant and high quality, um, if it's something more complex than just the blood work, uh, I think, you know, then, then deciding what is your, your, what is your, who's your audience, who's your public? Is it the IBD centre, the specialty centre, or is it really the general uh, GI community?
1: Yeah, right. That stratification, I think, is everything. Like, you need to often start at those academic centres or in a patient group. Like, for us, paediatrics is important. I think, interestingly, paediatric patients take their their technology with them through their life as well. So I think it's also quite a good place to start off because we're going to have that longitudinal data for these guys. But um, the specialist centres are a good landing ground, but, the, you know, it really resonates the CTC. I was there towards the end of that that little story arc. So at our centre, that's where Steve Halligan and co did the CIGAR trial, which is one of the big head-to-head studies in the UK for CTC against endoscopy. And they really thought it was going to... The amount of venture capital money that poured into CTC was, was vast because they thought it was going to go and replace this, this endoscopy. And of course, it was... N- it was non-inferior and like there was never a headline written, you know, that had the word non-inferior written in it. It's just not where It needs to be like an order of magnitude better to kind of got you know, to cut gastroes out of their day job. And of course like gastros like, like, ah, well, we won then, but then like it kind of, so you kind of enters the, kind of the trough of disillusionment, but then people are like, well, if the person's a bit frail or if, you know, there's a whole bunch of reasons you might not want to do um, full blown endoscopy. And now CTC ticks over a quite a decent number. Obviously, the UK is a bit smaller, but 100,000 CTCs are done every year in the NHS for like a certain group. And that's like a good business. That's quite a lot of them. And I, I suspect you both know exactly when and where you'd want to use CTC now. And you're thankful for the technology. Was it the grand slam that the VCs wanted when they were pouring capital into these companies? Like No, but it's still a pretty damn useful tool now. And I think what we've learned and how we use it, I think is really important. And I see par- parallels with the ultrasound debate in Crohn's at the moment I think the headline is gastros everywhere do their own scanning make MRI redundant and the the, the, the the truth of it is in the future is a big chunk of patients with small bowel Crohn's or ulcerative colitis with like obvious disease are followed up with ultrasound from time to time and gastros do that and it's not a headline and it's not as sexy as people might want to hear but it's going to be a blooming useful development in the field where you've got another tool that you can use and in circumstances and I think this is really what's the truth of medicine is and any company that looks like they're going to go and revolutionize something you've got to be a bit skeptical of that and I'm, I'm always a lot more behind people that really bang on about something really niche because I'm like well then they're probably taking the time to really unpack and understand how that's going to fit in and I'm under no illusions that GeoQuant is going to be situational I think there's going to be tight stricturing disease small regions of active disease that you want to track getting better in the small bowel it's going to be a go-to. The FDA, I'm not going to speak for them, but they get it and they know how it works and the performance criteria is all there. They've said, come back to us when you know, you've know you got new data and we'll look at adjusting your labelling. And it's, it's ripe for being used in clinical trials, I think, because you get a nice number that's quite repeatable by different levels, of skill levels in the user. So there's, it's got all the makings of a future successful test, but it's going to plop into a certain part of the care pathway not at the top, kind of down a few branches of the, the patient. And I'm actually A-OK with that. And The company's success is going to be built around having multiple tools that do specific things in a situational setting. And I just don't see how, whether it's us or someone else, are, are not part of that future. And that's why I kind of feel quite happy with my life and what I'm doing with the company. And that's why I'm probably never going to get any kind of venture capital backing. <laughs> But hell, I don't really, <laughs> I don't want it if it's going like, to tamper with that that positioning that we've worked so hard to achieve and the trust that we've built um, with our existing users out there.
0: Wonderful. I, I think, you know, going back to the idea of who are you going to convince to use this and, and, and who's going to use this and how they're going to maybe affect other people's opinions about using this, um, and, and it sounds like we're talking about physician champions and I wanted to ask, how have you gone about that um, so far? How have you gone about getting physician champions for your
1: company? Well, a bit like this. I mean, I think the podcast has just been basically a bit of a summary of how most of the interactions go down. Um, Obviously, I've never met Aline before today. It's it's been a pleasure. But often I'll corner the person <laughs> and <laughs> convince them to speak to me for about five minutes and that's normally all i need for them to realize that i'm not a complete yahoo salesperson <laughs> quite the opposite in fact and you have a discussion and then maybe some months roll by and there's a bit more back and forth and then enough time goes by and enough collab- especially collaborative projects like my secret skill is being able to write thousands of pages of documentation and that's really helpful for grants and winning money and all this kind of stuff so we've about five million dollars worth of grants we've managed to win over the last few years and that's all gone out to the the influencers as it were in the field and they get to go and do their research projects they get to wrap our technology in it's profitable the engagement with us for them i think in how they work and all that time they're kind of building up confidence and we're getting papers and doing all that kind of stuff and it's it's like a very very slow but methodical tete-a-tete around the future of the disease and i think some people don't want a piece of that and that's fine. They can, we'll come back to them later on. But I, I'm stunned by just how many high quality radiologists, gastros and surgeons there are that are like intellectually stimulated by the problems that we're dealing with. And I think when you kind of build up that, that rapport, it's, it's not like it's just a matter of time. But I think you, you can see a path forward to how this might kind of fold into their practice like now or maybe in the next hospital or, you know, at some point in the future. But I think the key thing is it's not like I'm like must buy right now. Like it, that, that that approach just doesn't work with the level of evidence we have on hand today. Our 40, 50 odd papers, they're good, <laughs> but it's not quite enough to kind of just allow us to kind of go in and do the hard sell um, just yet. But, you know, maybe maybe we're not a million years off. that.
2: I, I think, uh, you know, if I hear you well, like the ingredient to success is one, recognizing an unmet need to have a technology or a test that can answer that unmet need three have the data uh, to convince, uh, you know, regulatory bodies and and, and scientists uh, about the utility of the data, then I I don't know what number I'm at, but, you know, have, 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 you know, have the, Ethics. I think it's it's that's key. That you know what you kind of really express today is the ethics that this is done for improving patient care. This is not just not just another test to bill someone a test, but really have that um, you know social responsibility that this is this is done with a patient. Um, um, well being and patient health and mind. And then, really, connection and collaboration, right? That this is something where communicating uh, uh, that technology to others, uh, you know, getting other people excited about what this could do to their practice and to their patients. And then finally, and it seems like the key ingredient is patience and time, that things don't happen overnight, <laughs> right? It takes a lot of money, lots of time, lots of work. And uh, I think you know, often people see like a success story, and they think like something popped up overnight. And I think what you really highlighted today is that it's commitment, it's commitment, it's believing in the product, is rigorous science, it's 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 connecting with others, is uh, relationships, uh, it's understanding the process, and a lot of patience and time and 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 uh, focus. So, right.
1: Well, thank you. For <laughs>
0: Offer like a know, I offer therapy sessions on Sunday it. too. <laughs> I was gonna say that was a wonderful summary. That that really summed things up uh in a very beautiful way. So I think we are we're way over time. Um I, I, I didn't feel it, but I'm just looking at the at the timer and I'm like, whoa, I can't believe that <laughs> that we're we've been talking this long, but um i'm actually going to skip every every all the rest of the questions and i'm gonna open the door for alex to ask us a few questions if um if he wishes to and then open the door to aileen uh, to aileen to kind of do the same uh and then we'll wrap up
1: okay i guess one of the the core questions that i've got is what do you fear as gastroenterologists do you do you, you know what, what what makes your life difficult and what don't you like and i think there's and then how can I avoid doing it as an entrepreneur? How do I not piss you off, in other words?
2: <laughs> well, I can tell you you got me today. After listening to you, I'm, I'm all in, <laughs> ready to invest. Um, so, you know, what makes our life difficult? I think, you know, it's, it's a lot of things. You know, we, we all went into medicine with the idea that we really want to help people and recognizing that people have illnesses. But I don't think any one of us, when we were in our you know 20 years old reckon like could recognize or could understand the how big issues are how much a chronic illness affect patients lives so i think that's one is the first difficulty is really understanding how a disease for example like inflammatory bowel disease affect patients you know on so many level beyond the gi tract but then if we're just focus on the GI tract, it's it's a complex situation, that there's very few situations where there are enough situations like this where, you know, it's easy. You see this, you do that, you you expect certain results and you're done. But that, you know, recognizing now that there's a there are more complex situation, how can we approach them? And I think when you put yourself in the mindset that it's really uh, using your your the, the knowledge you have your clinical skills, like talking to patient. I think people forget about talking to patient, that with all this technology, you're not going to be able to interpret it until you bring it back to the patient and the patient's symptoms and the patient, uh, how they describe their story. So uh, really having the time, that's one of the frustrating things is having the time to sit down and talk to patients. I think in the fast-paced medicine world where, you know, there's, um, you know, we're given less time and less opportunity to connect with patients. That is a frustrating issue. But I think that's a key issue that's very important in terms of patient care. The second thing is that, yes, there are a lot of technology out there, right? There's a lot of medication out there. a lot of technology out there. So that is the next level of frustration is how do I know which one is best for my patient? And I think we talked upon this a little bit that, you know, I really look at all these technology tests, etc., cetera, as, um, you know, different element of my toolbox. And the, the, I think this is where the clinical skills that comes in is that which tool or tools are going to help me for this specific patient. And I don't think there's going to be one test that's going to help us make a decision with complex situation. It's going to be, you know, these multiple tests, you know, well-selected tests and, and, you know, specific for a patient situation that will help us Along with our clinical assessment to make a decision. So I think in terms of frustration, it's really that things are becoming more complex uh, in terms of disease uh, complexity, in terms of the tools that we have and how to manage them and how to incorporate them in our daily practice, and in terms of the limited time that we have to incorporate all that. So I think from you know someone like you who's innovating and bringing new technology. Is really how to make it simple for for, for, for simple people like us, <laughs> like us, for the plumbers of human beings, is how to make it like something that will be like aha moment. I'm like, oh my God, I have this test. I, it's going to be simple to give. My patient is not going to suffer through another excruciating or invasive test, and I'm going to have the answer that I need, you know, because that, that, in, in, in a, in a time efficient manner. And cost efficient, because we know, all know how much everything is added to the cost. So that's, that's my wish list for next Christmas for you.
1: <laughs> I'll, I'll start planning around. that.
0: What pisses me off is uh, when, when I talk to someone with a new product or a new idea or a new innovation, and they tell me that it's going to resolve everything. That really pisses me off. If somebody comes to me and says, oh, this is going to cure IBD. Or oh, this is going to cure IBS or your patients with IBS just, you know, are, are going to, I'm going to reduce your time of dealing with patients with IBS from, say, 60% of your clinic to 10% of your clinic. That really pisses me off because, you know, as gastroenterologists, we dedicate our life to learning about the GI tract. And we know, we know that one simple thing is not going to resolve the whole issue. So be specific, I think that that would be something um, that I absolutely, absolutely think um, will help you not piss a lot of people <laughs> off. And I think that you're great at that.
1: That's good. Thank you both for sharing that with me. I think it's useful though for a lot of people to hear that as well. We're so we're told by the, the startup culture to be big and think big and give the multi-billion dollar question and all the rest of it. But medicine is increasingly about nuance and specificity like if there was a quick ha- life hack for fixing ibs we probably have found it by now and it just turns out these things are probably much more complex than we think and i could go on literally ad nauseum about the microbiome and like you're not just going to quickly reprogram the damn thing there's like this wonderful ballet of interactions between the immune system your ngi tract this nine meter tube that's basically a separate organism seems to like found its way inside of us and like lives in this homeostasis There's not going to be a quick fix to that kind of stuff. It's going to involve a lot of complex research. And I think the truth is always far more interesting than the fantasy around all of this. I think if people were just a bit more down the middle with it, we'd have a lot more interesting debate and productive work. And I think the investment community might actually kind of be able to support more adequately the kind of companies that are spinning up in this space. But um, that's frankly way outside of my ability to talk about with any authority being a simple scientist who happens to have like founded a business that's taken away now so i'll quit while i'm ahead
0: <laughs> all right any other questions Alex?
1: <laughs> no that that's that's all for me i think i picked up a lot of stuff along the way and probed you all with questions so i think I'm, I'm
0: very satisfied
2: yeah same here i think we had a fantastic conversation so thank you for that i appreciate right.
0: it thank you um aline so much thank you alex so much this was a wonderful conversation Um, And hopefully we'll have you both uh, on a podcast in the future. Um, All right, take care. And if I can have both of you on for just five minutes after we stop recording, uh, that would be fantastic. And this concludes our discussion. I really hope you enjoyed it. If you have any questions or suggestions or want to be a guest on a podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out to me personally on my social media account. And please don't forget to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. It will really help us out in creating additional content. Thank you, and see you next time.